Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi everyone, I'm your hostess, Danielle McCartan, and welcome to episode 6 of my Power Players podcast, powered by Radio.com. I've got a very special guest for you today. She's the third longest tenured sideline reporter in NFL history, and she's covered more than 10 Super Bowls, hosted three Olympic coverages, and has reported for multiple World Series and NBA and NHL championships. Not to mention, she's a steady mentor to so many women in sports media, including me. It's Laura Oakman. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Any Anytime I get with you, I don't care if it's virtually or in person, I'm thrilled. So thanks for having me. We met just about a year ago at your Giants boot camp. And I know you start every boot camp the same way. The first activity that we completed was the conversation surrounding the question, what is your biggest fear? Now, it's my turn to flip the table on you, player to coach, student to teacher. Right now, what is your biggest fear? My biggest fear is everybody's biggest fear you know that I want to come out of this better than I came into it and I guess my fear would be that I don't take advantage of this that I buckle into the fear I you know buckle to the that paralyzing fear of we don't know what's going to happen we don't know what this world is going to look like and what I'm trying to do right now is not let that paralyze me instead let that push me and instead let that propel me to making sure that I'm using this time wisely to become better so my fear is probably that I don't do that versus I'm scared. You know, my fear is I don't know what's going to happen. We all have that one. But I hopefully am working every day to make sure that I'm thinking about a bigger picture, which is I don't know what's going to happen down the road, but I do know today I can make myself better. From what I know of you, Laura, you seem very goal-driven, very type A, checking off the boxes to get to the next level, mm-hmm. so to speak. On your ascension to the top, I use that in quotes, top, because you are at I that proverbial you top. Said it. I- Proverbially, you are at that top, Laura. And over the years, I mean, what did you feel like you missed out on most? I love this business. I, you know, this business has given me so many amazing things, so many blessings in almost 30 years. But at the same time, this business makes you sacrifice a lot. And so what I always say to all of you that I work with, all of you starting your ascensions or in the middle of your ascensions, 
I want to be there and I want to support you and I want to cheer for you and I want to root you on and watch you uh, watch you succeed in, in every single way. But the other part of me always wants to like hug you guys and be like, run, run from this. Get out while you can. And if you can do anything else, do something else. There's a part of me that always feels like that because I know how much sacrifice this business takes. And so what I would say to you is what I gave up was for a very long time, I gave up a life. My entire being, everything about me was about this job. And how do I check boxes? You know, Super Bowls and Olympics and NBA Finals and World Series. That's what I was focused on. And while I was hyper-focused on that, my mom passed away while I was young and, and, you know, in Montgomery, Alabama, starting my climb. And, and along the way, I can't even tell you how many friends and relationships that, um, that I left because I was, I, I just was too busy and I'm air quoting, but I was on the road all the time. I, I was working all the time. And so I very easily could tell anybody trying to get close to me, I don't have the time. Part of that was true. And part of that was a huge excuse. So I didn't have to get close to anybody. What you sacrifice is every weekend is all the weddings that your friends start having and baby showers they start having. And just, you know, and just holidays at home, you sacrifice all of that. I would just finish by saying this, you know, you sacrifice all of that. I also wouldn't give back any of it. You know, it's given me this incredible life that I have loved and been a privilege to be a part of. And so I never want to sound like I'm complaining about it, but I also always want to be really clear about it. So every young woman and man coming into this industry knows you get a lot, but you give a lot in return. And I'm being sort of facetious here, but when people say like, oh, Laura, how could you feel that way? You're on TV every weekend. You're covering, you're, you're at the Olympics. You're at the World Series, the Super Bowl. Yeah. How could you possibly feel that way? Yeah, it's, that's what was so hard. I know for, you know, you've heard me talk about this a bunch, Danielle, but I kind of look at my life in two acts. And my first act was uh, up until I hit 40. And then 40 was my second act, which I'm still in and completely changed my course. But what I would say is, the first act when I was checking those boxes off and in Super Bowls and NBA finals and hosting Olympics and checking off amazing boxes. But I can also tell you, I was really unhappy. I was very lonely. I had no life. I had no friends around because I was keeping them distant because I didn't want to sound like I was complaining. I didn't want to sound like I was ungrateful. And so I just kept saying, everything's great. And every time someone would say like, how incredible you're always on the road, you're, you're covering incredible things. And I was, but again, I was really, I was really sad and I was really lonely during the time of my life where I was also, you know, shattering some ceilings and, and really working so hard. I always look at that time of my life and I think, gosh, how cool, you know, like right now with, with the last dance and everything with the bulls, I traveled with the bulls during that time. You know, I was 24 years old and traveling with them and, and, you know, an incredible Super Bowls and doing these great things. And I look back at that and have incredible memories. But also when I look back at that, I remember how lonely I was and I remember how sad I was and, and remembering how quiet I was because I didn't want anyone to think that I was ungrateful for it. I very rarely complain to people unless it's somebody who travels and that they get it, you know, like that. They understand even if you, you know, have incredible things you're going to, still weeks on the road or months on the road. But I do find people in my world who are having the same life and going through it, and I'm much more vulnerable now, where I can say to them, how are you handling that? You know, what's, what's your self-care? And are you happy? Are you having a life when you are home? And so I probably have deeper conversations with other reporters about that now, of just how are you handling 
disliked Thou because so many of us didn't want to talk about it for so long. Who supported you in these times of like, or, or were you just very self-sufficient where like these doubts crept into your mind and you were the one that was kind of pushed them out? Or did you lean on somebody in, in those times? My best friend, which you know, for, you know, over two decades was Stuart Scott and Stuart knew everything, you know, that we really leaned on each other for that stuff because it wasn't complaining, you know, that we could call and, and it wouldn't matter that one of us was at the Bulls finals or one of us was, you know, for Stuart, you know, whatever huge event he was doing, it was always a phone call where we could say to each other, you know like hey how how are you doing and one of us could say I'm I'm struggling like I'm having a tough time right now we spent more of our conversations talking about those things at a time where people would have perceived we were doing great events and doing awesome things and we were but I really leaned on him to just kind of help me through that that was that was really tough back then and he was probably the only person during most of my early career that I really trusted that I knew wanted the best for me that I knew would never judge me that I knew all he wanted was for me to succeed in work and in life and I think I really really relied on him I met him just probably a couple months after my mom died and so my world was really reeling and I was in such a bad place he was the first person that I let in because he was impossible not to really allowed myself to be vulnerable with him and that really is one of the only that's who I would tell you helped me get through those tough times I think uh, an angle that female athletes I just talked to an Olympian a softball player about this were were children of your own ever in the conversation um yeah yeah I mean I think as a young girl I always thought I was going to get married and have kids. And I, I always thought that, but I was raised by a mom who had a career, but then quit for the baby and raised three kids. And so my mom pushed hard, get your career, get your money, get your life. And she would always say to me, babies can come later. Don't worry. You know, I'll help you with the baby, but don't, but don't think that right now you have to do that. Even though my friends were all getting married and having kids and I was still, you know, making $12,000 and struggling in a, you know, in a town that I'd never been in. And so I think when I was young, I thought, well, of course I want to get married and have kids because that's what we all thought. But then my baby became my job and it became my career. And so that's really what I was focused on. I would say now, like this is going to become a therapy session. I met my husband late in life and I'm madly in love. And now I look at it and go, oh, well, if I met him younger, I'd love to raise a baby. But what I would also tell you is we love the life we have and we don't have kids. And so what we try to do is make sure that we're raising something. So the relationship is our baby. You know, we're constantly watering the relationship because otherwise you can have two kind of selfish people in the relationship who don't have to think about anyone else but themselves. And I was always careful with that once I knew I wasn't going to have kids. I want to make sure that I don't get, you know, so into my own growth and into my own world. It helps that I'm with somebody that we, we treat the relationship like the baby. And it's, it's why I started Galvanize. You know, I don't, if I had my own children, I'm not positive. I would have started a company and worked with, you know, thousands of women because I would have been raising my own. I sometimes think that that was meant to be that I didn't have my own children so I could help raise all of you wonderful women. You've, uh, you've alluded to, but you never really expanded upon 
um, your mom passing away. It was cancer. She was very young, and and you were young too. What did you have to learn to do on your own? Everything. I really think about where I was in my life, and I remember back then at you know 22 or 23, just thinking like, oh, I had her for so long, and how lucky I am. And now I look back at how young I was, and I just kind of like feel so bad for that young girl. I was just figuring out who I was. I had so little confidence back then. I was in, you know, in Montgomery, Alabama. I'd never been that deep south. And I was in a place where there had been no women in sports. And then I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, right after she passed. And so it was all of a sudden showing up to two places. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any close relationships. And a lot of people telling me I didn't belong. That was hard. That did a number on me. And I didn't have the balance I needed. I didn't have my mom there to be able to, you know, to say you do belong and to help me with my confidence. And, and she was such a strong, strong, strong voice in my ear. So that was really hard for me trying to figure out not the sports business, because she certainly, you know, has ne- had never navigated it and wouldn't have been able to help with that. But she would have helped me so much with my confidence in myself and making sure that I didn't make a lot of bad decisions, which I did make, you know, that, and she even told me that right before she passed, where she said, my hope with you is when I'm gone, you don't try to go fill this hole, let this hurt, don't try to rub dirt on it. And that's what I did. You know, I very quickly looked for someone to make me feel better when I just needed my own time. I needed my therapy. I needed, I needed to work on my, my confidence and my growth, but I did. And I rushed to, you know, the wrong people to help me with that. And so I always just think, I wonder how different it would have been if I grew up with that confident voice in my ear telling me while everyone else was saying, you don't belong here. We don't want you here. We don't care what you say. You you don't know what you're talking about. I always think, I wonder if my confidence would have grown so much quicker if I could have balanced that with her voice telling me how wonderful I was and how much I belong to keep going and keep believing in myself. And I think we miss a lot if you don't have that voice at that age. And then when you look back on your time in Alabama, away from your family, away from your mom, what do you think about? Do you think, see it as like lost time in a way? No, I I look at it very much as the most, probably the most important time, you know, between I was a year in Alabama and then a year in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So those two years were the most important years of my life career-wise because it was hard. You know, these local markets where you do your own shooting, which I did in Montgomery and your own editing. And in Montgomery, I was a news reporter in the week and sports on the weekend. So I had to learn how to be a storyteller. And I'm so happy I learned as a one man band because I could tell a story from a 360 degree angle now. You know, how do you shoot it? How do you make sure you write to what you're shooting? How do you make sure you give your editor a chance of what you're shooting? And it just, it set me up to be a team player. So I, I didn't just think about me as a reporter. I thought about what my whole team was as a, as a photographer, as an editor, as the sound person, as the light person. I had to do all that and I wasn't good at any of it. So it, I learned a lot from it. And you know, I always say this, it taught me about building relationships and it's why I'm such a fan of smaller markets. I made mistakes small. I wasn't very good, you know, and I didn't know how, how much work I probably had to do, but I was able to make those mistakes in a small market. And I, you know, I got to know Michael Jordan through covering baseball. I got to know Charles Barkley because he was from Alabama and would come home. I got to know Cheryl Owens because he played football and basketball at UTC. So I covered him. 
And so it really helped being able to be a young reporter, a young woman, and cover these people. And then as I was kind of climbing, they were climbing. It built these great relationships that we knew each other more than just me getting thrown into Chicago or getting thrown into New York. And you're among hundreds of reporters and trying to stand out, trying to build relationships. Those small markets really helped me um, make sure that I was establishing relationships and making sure that I was growing up, you know, not just as a reporter. Again, like as a, as a woman trying to figure out this business, and I'm glad I got to do it small and make my mistakes there versus at a network. After all of this, you know, up until this point, I think we all have an idea of what, quotes again, the top is. Did and how did your perspective of the top change? Mm, that's such a great question. I think it continues to change. At your age, what I thought the top was were those check boxes, you know, the Super Bowls and, and the Olympics and the NBA Finals and, you know, and World Series. And that, to me, was being at the top of your game. Now, how I look at it is uh, a couple different ways. I look at longevity versus a sweet gig. You know, I look at how are you building a career, and that's the definition of success to me in this business. Um, when I look at women who've been doing this for a very long time um, in a business that you're told after 40, your shelf life's kind of over. And so for me to watch women who continue to do this and have lasted decades in this, you know, three, you know, I'm almost at three decades. That's probably my definition of feeling success now of just knowing I've done it a long time. And there's something great about that. And the other thing is for me, feeling like I'm on top of my game, it's just, it means I'm living a well-rounded life for the first time. I feel like I've never been more confident in what I do, but I've also never been more confident in who I am. That to me is I'm living my best life right now, because if you're going to introduce me or you're going to get to know me, I hope that being a reporter or a sideline reporter, or, you know, or anything with my job, I hope that's the last thing you'll say. I hope it's about who I am. I hope it's about how I treat you. I hope it's about how I'm growing. I hope it's about all these other things I'm trying to do to make other people grow. And at the end of the day, oh yeah, and she also works for the NFL on Fox. But I hope that isn't the first thing people say. What might you title a letter to your younger self? It would be probably, it's such a good question, but it's probably hang in there you're not going to believe how good it's about to get for you. You know, like that, that's probably how it would start. And I don't know if anything else would have mattered besides that line of just having that North as my compass, like, okay, it's going to, it's, it's going to get great. I just need to keep doing the work to get there. Boy, I also wish I would have, you know, I put somewhere in there about, you know, take this job seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Enjoy this more and believe in yourself. You know, all those things that I needed to learn. There's something to doing all this work and not knowing where it's going to lead or if it's going to lead anywhere. And I think that gives you just a different sense of hunger and a different sense of purpose when you don't know where it's leading, but you believe in it so much and you and you love it so much and you believe in yourself so much that you have no choice to, except to do it. I mean, for me, even, and I think a lot of quote unquote young, I'm not so young, but young reporters, I think yes, you when it are. comes down to... <laughs> well, thanks. But when it comes down to making choices, you know, like especially young reporters, they want to say yes to everything. I want to say yes to everything. But I'm learning now that sometimes saying no is more impactful. So what was something that you were offered that you've said no to? A lot of things, to be honest, um, because I was the same way. I said yes to everything. And what changed for me was when I was trying to create a life and 
when I was so unhappy and you've heard me talk about this, but I, I, every morning I would wake up and I just couldn't get out of bed. And I was paralyzed by one thought, which was always, I don't know what makes me happy. And that would keep me in bed longer. And then one day I changed the inflection to, I don't know what makes me happy. And that was a purpose. And that was a start. So everything that anybody brought to me, any opportunity, any invitation in the old days, I would have said yes. But what I started doing was asking myself, will doing this make me happy? That was just a different way for me to look at it. And so it enabled me finally for the first time look. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Things and go, you know what? That doesn't make me happy or that won't help me grow. And that might be someone else's opportunity. And I need to be okay with that. That turning something down means an opportunity for someone else. And I think before I always felt like, well, I have to say yes, because otherwise I'll lose that. If I lost the opportunity, it wasn't my opportunity. So I know when I was doing all that work, which was when I turned 40, I stopped working for a couple of months. And I was fortunate that I was able to do that. But I turned down a lot of opportunities because I really made a commitment. I wasn't going to hide in my job and, and I wasn't going to hide in work. So I had a couple months before football. And so I was able to say, you know what, I'm going to spend as much time preparing on myself as I do on the games that I cover. And so I took I took some time to do that. And that was tough because there are a few things I would have loved to do. But now looking back at that, I'm so thankful because if I would have said yes, nothing would have changed. I would have kept going the same way I was, but it, it made me have to sit at home, you know, kind of self-isolation, right? I couldn't escape in a travel to a travel or to a job or to an interview or to somebody else's story. It made me stay at home by myself and really work on my own story for the first time. You said at that Giants camp, you talk about smashing ceilings and everything. You turned down an opportunity to be the first female NFL insider. And I remember sitting there, I was lost in my own thoughts. Sorry, I tuned you out after that. And I just thought about how, <laughs> pro how profound like journalistic integrity is to you. Do players, either current or former, know that you made that decision? No, like I've never even, I've never really talked about it, but it was a boss who I love who just said to me, with all your contacts, all your relationships, you know, I'd love to make this your role. And I'm glad it happened when I did, because when I was younger, I would have said yes immediately, because what that would have done for my career. But the most important thing to me then and now is, you know, this is the relationship that I have. And those relationships have changed and morphed into different roles I have with people. And so I could never have built the relationship. I shouldn't say that because I know a lot of insiders who do have terrific relationships with people. But for me, I loved that all the conversations I had with people that never made the air. I never felt pressure that should I say this or should I tell anybody this? Should I report this? I never struggled with that. But I thought 
if I'm now being paid to be an insider, that's the stuff I have to talk about. And I just wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. So I probably don't share that often, but, but I share it with you guys all the time because you have to really make that decision. What kind of reporter are you? What is off the record to you? Does, can I tell you something? I mean, yes, it's completely confidential. Or does it mean, well, I'm going to say the story, but I'm going to say an unknown player told me this or, you know, an unnamed source. And so you, it's, again, why I love starting small, because I had to learn that at a young age. And if I started too fast, too high, I would have struggled with that because I would have wanted to please everyone else. And I will say this, actually, speaking of like the Michael Jordan, you know, last dance right now, Michael taught me one of my greatest lessons as a young reporter because I knew him in baseball. So I got to cover him for a couple of months. And then when he went back to Chicago for championship number four, I went to Chicago. So I, you know, I'm a Chicago girl. So it was a huge deal for me. When I started working for my new company, my new boss, they would send me all the time to go get Michael's reaction to something even if it wasn't bulls related michael related but they knew i could get michael and so they'd ask me and sometimes i'd have a camera and i'd kind of sneak a place and know where he'd be going and he did it the first couple times and then like on the third time he kind of you know waved the finger you know like come here and just said i know this isn't you i know that you have a new job and i know that you have bosses that know you can get to me so i need to give you a message to give to your bosses tell them just because you can go to the well doesn't mean you should from that moment on he said to me i'm going to give you one long sit down a year you get to pick it but tell your bosses you get that one you know so when do you want to use it and that was one of the greatest lessons I learned, which is just because you can go to the well, you can go to someone, doesn't mean you should go to them all the time. And it certainly doesn't mean you should go to them with an agenda every time you see them. And that was really, really helpful to me. I mean, that was that was invaluable as a young reporter who was just trying to please her bosses and understanding they don't care about my relationship with Michael Jordan. But I've got to care about that because that's going to last me a long time if I'm lucky. If I drive him crazy or I burn him now, I might be happy for a day, but they're going to come back and say, we need you to go to Michael. And at that point, I have to say, I can't go to him anymore because I've gone to the well too many times. My bosses weren't watching that. I had to watch that and I had to be in charge of that. And that was having to learn how to balance that. In your early experience in the business, did you encounter, I mean, I talked to Susan Waldman and, and she was one of the, the original or the only women yeah. in the in it. So, I mean, were you encountering women being mean-spirited towards you or were they just non-existent? Yeah, more just non-existent. Um, you know, back then I used to count, you know, every time I would go to, you know, that I was covering the NBA finals or anytime I would, you know, like cover a big event I would count women because I could you know you needed one to two hands tops you know you were I was happy if I could get to two there just weren't that many of us and I will say this because I'm always really careful I don't want to perpetuate the stereotype of women are horrible to women and so what I'll say is it was so hard to make it in this business it still is but now there's more of us so it's not quite you know it's not quite as formed you, you know back then it's just most of us would say we were the only woman in the locker room most of the time and then eventually you'd go to you know to New York you know if I'm covering the Bulls and Knicks and there'd be another woman in there so You'd see another woman once in a while, but there were never more than a couple in a locker room. It wasn't that I think women were not being helpful towards each other or trying. I just think we all had our heads down. And it was like, I just want to make it through this. I just want to earn this. I just want to prove this. I just want to prove myself. And when you're doing that, you're not looking ahead to see, well, maybe I can lean on someone who's done it before me and they can help me. I certainly wasn't looking behind me to see, well, maybe I can help somebody. 
And I wasn't looking side to side to be like, hey, is anyone doing this with me? You just kind of stay in your hole and stay, you know, with your head down and just kind of plowing through and trying to block your own way. I just don't think at that time there were enough of us. And I don't think it was a particularly empower a women empowering women industry simply because, again, there wasn't enough of us, but also just everybody was trying so hard just to make it on their own. For what you've done, you've created for me and for hundreds of us, it's it's that network of women. How do you think your career path would have been different had you had that when you were starting out or even up until, you know, until you started your Galvanize even? I don't think I would be on the podcast with you. I think that it kind of goes to if I, I remember one time when uh, this was years ago, like probably 10, 12 years ago, and I was driving with my nephews who um, I love so much and they were very young. And I remember looking in the rearview mirror at them and they were asking, why don't you have your own kids? And I was living in LA, which is where they live. So I was spending a lot of time with them. And I just said to them, you know, if I have my own baby, you guys know you won't get, probably won't get all the time with me, right? Like, you know that you're getting me all the time. And they immediately were like, please don't have babies. Don't ever have babies. <laughs> uh, and so I kind of look at that as the galvanized. If I would have had a sisterhood, I would not have created galvanized. I, it just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought about it because I wouldn't have thought it was needed. But because I needed it so badly and because I craved it so badly, I, I just, I think if, if I, if I had it, there just would have been no need for it. And then I think about now, because when you say like hundreds of women, if you go back to the beginning of Galvanized before it even had a name, but like my first boot camp was about 11, 12 years ago now, when I do the math and someone made me recently, and it was over 2000 women over 10 years. So how I look at that, Danielle, is like your boot camp, there were how many? 24, maybe? It doesn't seem like a lot. But if 24 of you go galvanize and you go, you go take that sisterhood and you take that feeling that we felt in two days, you know, about how close that group got in particular, if you all go create that in your workplace or your university or, you know, where your station, wherever you are, even though there's only 24, how I've always looked at it is that's 24 of you who now can go change 24 cultures. When I think of like all, you know, the women that, you know, that I've loved through these boot camps and through galvanize, I'm so thankful for you all. But what gets me like really hopeful is if we start looking at it as 2000 women and all of you changed a culture and you thought about empowering women more than you did before like look how many lives we've changed in this business and and I just think if I would have already had that I wouldn't have created it and so boy that would make me so sad because this has added so much joy to my life and so much purpose so I'm really thankful I didn't have it when I was younger, so I could help create it for you guys. You told us, and I guess I'm paraphrasing now, but that your mom, correct me if I'm wrong, that your mom wouldn't believe that you're mentoring and coaching hundreds of women in media? No, my mom would have. I just, I wasn't a girl's girl. I really, you know, I, I kind of came from that place where, you know, it, I grew up with mean girls and I was, I was scared of that. And so I didn't trust women. I didn't trust girls. And so... My mom really was, you know, my mom was who I told everything to. And, and so since I could tell my mom all the bad things I was doing and there was no judgment, I didn't need to go elsewhere. And so I trusted her so much that I could go to her. I think my mom would have been, I don't think, my mom would be delighted by this. And my mom was such an empowerer of women. And my mom was such a good woman and such a good woman to other women. So she would have, she'd be so thrilled right now. But I think she would have smiled and been like, didn't see that coming. You know, saw the boys coming and saw the sports coming. But I think this would have been a twist. She would have been really, really excited about. And 
you know, and probably if I thought about it, she'd be, you know, probably a little sad that I didn't have kids. And before she could say that to me, I think what she would say is, but you had 2,000 of them, didn't you? Like, I think she'd get that more than anyone because she was such a wonderful um, resource to so many other women. So now that we've got this network of women, not just confined to geographical location of where we attended the camp. I mean, we're all over the country. I know you have something else in mind. What are the next steps for Galvanize? Just these virtual camps. I hate the fact that, you know, we're most likely not going to be able to do boot camps with NFL teams during this offseason because, you know, who knows what this offseason is. And I was scared to death about the virtual ones because I just thought, how can I, how can I create that vulnerability and that trust virtually? How can we feel sisterhood virtually? And that these girls could connect. And some of these girls are now friends just from virtually looking at each other. What I loved so much about that was, you know, the first boot camp I did, it, it took months to find 20 women, you know, probably three or four months. It was so hard. And now there's a waiting list of every boot camp for 30, you know, 20, 30 women. And so what I really loved about this time is that everybody got to go to a boot camp. And now I look at it as we got at least 300 women into Galvanize. And if the only thing they took out of that is, gosh, I can't wait to create a sisterhood, then that's all I need. I've had other teams from other leagues ask if I'll do boot camps with them. And I love that for us and love, you know, love making it bigger. But I think probably what I've loved more than anything is, you know, while you guys love day two and teaming up with the rookies and I do too, day one is my heart, which is just all you guys in a room and falling in love with each other. And I'll probably try to keep thinking of ways to keep that going. And another piece of this is um, we met with, at the time, head coach of the Giants, Pat Shermer, in that in the Giants auditorium. And I was sitting in my seat, and I just I realized that you're also a media coach, not just for us, but for the coaches as well. And no one ever thinks about that. So I guess which was born first, the, the galvanized, the mentoring of the women, or the coaching of the coaches aspect? It's, you know, it's, it's the magic and the beauty when you stop checking boxes off because all of a sudden these incredible things started happening that I didn't plan for. And, and I didn't have a box that said any of the titles. I would say it all sort of came together where it goes back to, you know, the galvanized gave me a purpose. I had so much passion for what I did, but I never had a purpose. And suddenly I started really caring a lot, not just about women, but also coaches and players who I was seeing getting taken advantage of or seeing them not be able to be themselves. And I was getting to know them in these terrific ways. I knew they didn't trust anybody or, you know, everything was off camera. And and so I really wanted to say after being on this side of the microphone for so long, how can I help the other side? And that felt very purposeful to me. You know, everyone always thinks of galvanize. It's all about us. And it is. But day two, it's very much about the rookies and they're exactly where we are all these young men are starting their dream they know how competitive it is they're scared but they're not talking about it they're not admitting it and suddenly bringing 24 women in and taking 24 rookies and having both sides talk about their fear and their vulnerability and what they're excited for and what they're scared about that helps a lot more than just our side but to work on empathy for each other how hard it is to have to lead a conversation or an interview and how sometimes tough it is to ask questions that seem very nosy or seem very painful and I want the athletes to feel that and at the same time I wanted the women to feel how horrible 
vulnerability field. You know, it's hard when someone you don't know starts asking you personal questions and you don't know their agenda. And so I love having both sides grow together and empathy grow together. And that's what the coaches too. I never saw any of this coming. What is the single best tactic that you could teach to them to deal with the media in quotes and stay true to themselves as well? Yeah, it's, it's that's tough. And, and that probably the most work it takes when dealing with, especially with head coaches, because how I like to really look at it as I'm not looking at your logo, I'm looking at you because logos change, right? And that's really what I try to work on, which is not that you have to trust everybody, but are you trusting anybody? How do you vet reporters? Not just give trust, but how do you earn trust? So many times what happens is they don't want to show who they are because they don't trust the media. Well, that's what every viewer sees. That's who, you know, your fan base sees. And so to really try to make sure that you're yourself, that isn't easy because you do, you have to trust. You have to trust other people are not to get you. And that's hard because it's in this business, there's great reporters and there's some reporters that will burn you in a minute. That's been the great challenge and purpose, you know, in this second chapter as I do the communications coaching is not teaching anybody or coaching anyone to be naive, but also how do you work on it feeling a little more trustful and how do we get you a little more vulnerable so you can start showing who you are. You don't have to give any names, of course, but yeah. what have been some of the most difficult experience that you've encountered? Coaches love to be coached. What I have found is they want to know the truth. They're in buildings where everybody tells them what they think they want to hear. I was really nervous in the beginning to, you know, can I tell them what they don't want to hear? Can I tell them where I think that they weren't as strong here as they should be? Or what I found that I loved is all they want to hear is the truth. They want good feedback, but they crave that hard feedback uh, that they give the player. So all of a sudden to feel like you can critique and you can criticize, that was a big challenge for me. I've loved this after doing the same thing for almost 30 years to look at it from the opposite direction. It's opened my eyes so much. It's been the privilege of a lifetime to be trusted and it's been the pleasure of a lifetime getting in not just with these these head coaches but their families and their wives and feeling like I'm part of the team is pretty amazing. Final subject is quarantine life and a lot of people are home right now they're watching Michael Jordan The Last Dance. You (laughs) were an integral part of that team. I mean you won an Emmy Award. I'm raising my hands if you can't see me right now but for you and your coverage of that team what was that experience like for you to be just so embedded in arguably the best or the greatest team in sports ever in your hometown. Uh, It was just even you saying that it was your hometown. It made it so incredible, you know, for me to be on the court of the United Center at the hotel at practice in, in the whole city of Chicago, it turned on the Bulls. That was it. Like our orbit was the Bulls. Everything in those three years was about that team. And so to feel like you were in the epicenter of it, you'd be out to dinner and everyone would talk about the Bulls and the gossip going around, but that you knew what was really happening. And back then it was very different. We didn't really report on what was happening. You know, there was a lot going on that uh, that people didn't hear about. And so talk about a privilege, you know, the, the idea that you knew what was happening on the inside was pretty amazing. It was just really neat. You know, every parade, I would walk from where I lived downtown to where the park was, where they would do the championship celebration. Everybody feeling the euphoria of that time. That was really neat to be able to feel that at home. And and again, to be on a court and know that all my friends were watching it on TV or all my friends were in, you know, in the arena, if they were lucky enough to get in. To know as a young reporter that that's where I cut my teeth. It was amazing. And that's where Short and I got close. We met in 95. We met because of the bull. It was the day that Alonzo Mourning was traded from Charlotte to Miami. And Miami 
was playing um, the Bulls that day. Short and I were in the media center all day waiting for Pat Riley to come in. We kind of got stuck in a room and started talking. And what Stuart and I would always talk about, we'd be on the court watching a game. And one day we heard a reporter sitting next to us get really frustrated because it was going into overtime. And they were so pissed because of, you know, like, oh, the deadline. And I get that as a reporter, I get that. But it was in the middle of like a tremendous game. And it was in the middle of, you know, like this tremendous series. Stuart and I made the vow right there. We're like, let's make sure that we appreciate this. Let's make sure that we are very aware of the history that we're a part of. And let's make sure also not to get lost in their story and make sure that we're working on ours. Let's enjoy it. The fact that we are sitting here. We used to keep the roster in front of our faces. So when Michael would do something incredible or whoever would, we'd cover our faces, but we'd be looking at each other mouthing like, holy shit. You know, like we were so fired up. <laughs> if I didn't have him, I don't think I would have done that. I think I would have sat on my hands and, you you know, you have to be a member of the press and act responsibly. But him and I really pushed each other to be like, let's let's enjoy this time because one day we're going to be so amazed we were a part of it. And that's what's been really cool about watching this documentary is it's just bringing all of that back. Every reporter they're interviewing. And I just remember how so kind Michael Wilbon was to me and how kind David Aldridge was to me and these incredible reporters who even though I wasn't ready and I was so in the deep end on this one I was so young and not ready to handle this they made me feel better and they welcomed me and I I just think about that with all of this stuff but anyway that's my that's you know my advice to you you know in the middle of New York in the middle of all these events that sometimes we can treat them like stories but you're going to be doing all these interviews one day too about these incredible experiences you you were at and well I'm not good with telling you how many points Michael had with you know exceptions of 63 and things like that I can't always remember a score I can't usually remember how many points or rebounds that somebody had but I can probably tell you every game something meaningful that happened and that could have been a, a, an exchange with Michael that could have been an exchange with Ron Harper, or that probably would have been more of something that I experienced with Stuart. And so what I'm really, really happy for is as years go by and the details kind of get fuzzy, what doesn't get fuzzy is the good people that I shared that time with. And that was amazing. What's one thing that you wish that they will show in the upcoming episodes, being with that team so intimately? I've had more people say to me like, wow, I, I never seen that side of Michael. It makes me smile because that's Michael. <laughs> you know, that competitiveness and how hard he was on teammates, how hard he was on everybody, how hard he was on every every media member. You know, he challenged you. It's easy to like look back at Michael and just see the endorsements and the commercials and that smile and all of that. But he's a different level of competitiveness. He was a completely at a completely different level with how he tried to bring other people up or how he talked to them. And I love that it shows that. I love that. And I'm sure it's only going to get more so. But I was worried since it was Michael endorsed that it would show him in such a flattering light. But I think it's been such a real light. And I've loved that people can finally see how intimidating he was and how how scary he could be sometimes. Like you had to know what you were talking about just to talk to him. I think that's one of the things I love so much about this documentary. You know, you saw when Michael went to Paris, just the crowd, but that wasn't just Harris. That was checking in, in, you know, at the plaza in New York and seeing, you know, hundreds of people waiting outside for the bus. And it was just being around in that time was legitimately covering a rock band. I mean, I could teach a whole class just on what I learned from one year of that. Through the lens of sports, what do you hope will come out of the time we're, that we're in right now that the world stopped? What, what I keep thinking as a reporter is 
I can't wait for football to come back because I can't wait to have real conversations with everybody. You know, what what you learned about yourself and what work you've done and how you got better from it or how you struggled, probably even more importantly, through it. And I think that I can't wait for those real conversations. I know, you know how I am. I always tell you guys, like, I don't do small talk. I don't believe in small talk. I, I just have no patience for it. I, I'm one of those that, like, if we're going to talk, then let's do this. Like, let's get real. And I don't care if that's two minutes or if that's an hour. And so what I hope is that changes interaction with people. And that's, you know, reporter to athlete or reporter to coach, but that's player to player. And that's coach to player, coach to coach. I'm doing a Zoom with an NFL coaching staff this week and, and trying to help them build deeper relationships with players virtually. How do you do that? And so I'm excited that they asked me to do that. And excited that they're trying to do that. The fact that this coaching staff wants to do the work to make sure they're not wasting this time is pretty awesome. And I hope we're doing the same thing. How do I make sure that every conversation I have is more meaningful? How do I make sure that I don't just say, how are you? And that person says, I'm fine. How are you? And that's the end of it. Use this time to dig in. Use this time to really be vulnerable and and get vulnerability out of people. You know, as with everything with me, I hope that that comes out of this is just better, deeper relationships and more connected. Well, Laura, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking so much time with me today and with the audience, the listening audience, and being so open, so vulnerable about a lot of these things. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, this was such a pleasure. I did not know we were going to get uh, into children and into all of these <laughs> things I did not see coming, and that's why I love talking to you so much. I, I love that this was um, that this was five layers deeper than I thought we were going to go. And uh, I know that you just not just made my day with a great conversation, but you've given me things to think about when we hang up, and I so appreciate that and so appreciate how you're using your platform and your purpose. Well, that does it for this episode. Be sure to check out my past work available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Power Players. Have a guest that you want featured on my Power Players podcast? Drop me a line on Twitter at Coach M-C-C-A-R-T-A-N or on Facebook.com slash Coach McCartan. See you next time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.